could lead be responsible for some of our country's crime rate? After the great American crime decline, people wanted to understand why the US had been plagued with so much violence to begin with. And interestingly enough, the crime decline occurred around the same time lead was banned. Does this mean that lead creates killers? Or is this purely coincidental? Hello everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Prism of the Past. I'm the Illuminati, and today we're going to be talking about the lead crime hypothesis. Now, this is one of those things that I remembered watching a video or a documentary or something on it years ago, and it just kind of stuck around in my head and drifted around for a couple of years. And just recently, I just kind of started thinking about it again. And I was like, you know what? Maybe I should look into this a little bit more. So here we are. After all, we know that if blood lead levels are too high, bad things happen. But to think that they're partially responsible for serial killers, I just had to dig a little deeper to see if I was remembering it wrong or if this was true. So let's start today's episode by talking about lead's effects on the body, the damage lead can do, and then we'll get into this lead crime hypothesis, as well as touch upon a few other theories out there as to the decreasing homicide rate. So let's get into it. Lead is toxic at any dose, and it serves no purpose inside our bodies whatsoever. Sure, anything can be dangerous if you have too much of it, but lead is especially this way because it can stay in the body years after exposure. Additionally, it doesn't matter if you breathe in, swallow, or absorb lead, the health effects are all the same. According to the CDC, the body does absorb higher levels of lead when it's breathed in, but either way, lead is stored in our bones, blood, and tissues. As we age, our bones demineralize, which could potentially increase the release of lead from our bone tissue. There's even theories that lead can mobilize from the bone among women going through menopause, as postmenopausal women have found to have higher blood lead levels than premenopausal women. The World Health Organization also describes it as a cumulative toxicant that can affect multiple body systems, such as the brain, liver, kidneys, and bones, and it's particularly harmful to children. Kids can absorb four to five times as much ingested lead as adults from a given source. And considering that kids are often sticking things in their mouth, they are at a higher risk. This could be soil or flakes from something covered in a lead-containing paint, nearly anything. Hell, one source gives an example of a hobbyist who made his own lead musket balls in his basement for revolutionary and civil war reenactments. He had elevated blood lead levels it's very possible to be exposed to lead, more common than you might think, in fact. But what does lead do exactly? Well, according to one source, once lead enters the body, it first flows through the bloodstream where it slowly crosses into various organs such as the kidneys, muscles, and brain. Lead is bad for humans because it interferes with numerous enzymes inside the cells of these organs. This results in symptoms such as muscle and joint aches, as well as constipation and overall fatigue. It damages our brains by infecting it with how brain cells send messages and communicate. Lead decreases fertility in both males and females. It harms our kidneys and can result in hypertension later in life. Lead prevents our bodies from creating hemoglobin, a molecule that carries oxygen in our red blood cells, resulting in anemia. In kids, it can alter brain development and result in a lower IQ and learning problems as it interferes with the release of signaling molecules called neurotransmitters. There are treatments such as chelation, but there is no safe amount of lead out there. 
It can cause abdominal pain, constipation, fatigue, headaches, memory loss, loss of appetite, pain or tingling in the hands and feet, weakness, you name it. Because these symptoms can be caused by something else or occur slowly, they can be overlooked too. Lead can also cause damage to a fetus if a pregnant woman is exposed or even cause miscarriages and stillbirths and fertility issues in both men and women. So I think the point here is pretty clear that lead is dangerous and we've known about this for quite a while and the evidence we've talked about proves how and why that is, but can it truly make people violent? After all, correlation doesn't equal causation. So even if serial killers or murderers in general may have high lead levels in common, can we prove that this means the lead caused them to be this way? Well, let's start digging into that lead crime hypothesis and see what we uncover. And normally I like to put the sponsor section towards the end of every episode, but because this one's really fascinating, I just wanna get it out of the way to begin with. So real quick, we're gonna place today's sponsor right here. You know what really sucks? When you have to go in public, whether it be a walk, going to a store, whatever it is, and you just wanna zone out, listen to your music, do your thing, and you can't, because all you can hear is the other annoying music that's playing or overhearing other people's conversations. Terrible. That's why I use Raycons as my everyday wireless on the go earbud. These things are easy, whether you're at the gym, walking around, walking the dog, hanging out, reading a book, they are there for you through thick and thin. And with the new everyday earbuds, they look, feel, and sound better than ever with improved rubber oil look and feel. And they have optimized gel tips for the perfect in-ear fit and you get three new sound profiles to make sure everything you're listening to sounds its best with just the right amount of bass. And Raycons also offer eight hours of playtime and a 32 hour battery life. So you can use these babies for a long time. So if you haven't tried Raycon yet, now is the time. You can get 15% off your entire order when you go to buyraycon.com prism. That's buyraycon.com prism to save 15% on Raycons buyraycon.com slash prism. Contrary to common belief, most cases of lead poisoning in children do not come from eating lead-based paint. Until recently, doctors weren't quite sure of the cause, but now they have some of the answers. Doctors at the University of Illinois and Rush Presbyterian St. Luke's Medical Center say it is dirt. Some kids eat it, some play in it and breathe it for hours. Soil absorbs lead from the gas in the cars we drive. The closer to a highway or busy street, the higher the concentration of lead. That means city kids suffer most. Up in many cities, New York City's crime rate has fallen to levels not seen since the 1950s. The NYPD says there have been 289 murders this year. That's down from a peak of more than 2,200 in 1990. So what is New York doing right? Although it may not seem like it at times, the rates of violent crime have actually decreased, especially from the 70s to the 90s. Scientists noticed this decrease and as one hypothesized, thought it could be due to the amount of lead exposure decreasing during the same time period. After all, it wasn't until the 1920s and 1930s that doctors were really prepared to look out for lead poisoning symptoms. Many cases still weren't identified, but at least it had been acknowledged that lead containing paint was a main source of lead poisoning. And by the 1940s, the amount of lead in interior paints was reduced. Then in 1978, lead-containing paints were banned altogether, but paints weren't the worst of it. 
According to one source, in the United States from the 1950s through the 1980s, leaded gasoline was considered the main source of environmental lead contamination. And from 1973, its use in cars was phased out. Its use in on-road vehicles was eventually completely banned in 1996. This led to the average blood level decreasing by an estimated 78% in the US between 1976 and 1991. This great decrease in lead poisoning was also around the time that the great American crime decline took place. By 2010, the Bureau of Justice Statistics announced that the homicide rate reached a four decade low. We may feel as if there's more violent crime than ever, but some sources argue that our perception is that way because of sensationalist coverage of isolated crimes. For example, in New York City in 1990, the homicide rate was 31 people per 100,000. In 2013, it was only four per 100,000. Yet in 1990, there were 129 mentions of homicide or murder in New York Times headlines, whereas in 2013, there were 135. Although this is only one city within the US, the point remains that even though it seems like crime has risen, the trend is actually downward. Yes, crime rates have risen and changed these past couple of years, and I won't pretend that there's no fluctuation whatsoever. For example, between 2019 and 2020, we actually saw a 3% rise, but generally speaking, compared to what it was decades ago, we're far from where we used to be. Of course, even if we understand the homicide rate dropping, that doesn't mean we understand why. There are a ton of theories out there, ranging from legalizing abortion to antidepressants, to people staying indoors more, to the decreased demand for crack and heroin, to the strong economy of the 90s, to, of course, the theory behind today's episode, the lead crime hypothesis. Personally, if I had to guess, I would say that a combination of these and other factors caused a decrease in crime. I don't think you can attribute it to any one singular thing. Even so, the lead theory has piqued my interest quite a bit. So let's see what the scientists have to say about it. One article posted to Science Direct says that there is evidence that forms of violent behavior are more frequent in individuals of a lower IQ. Therefore, if lead poisoning can decrease a child's IQ like we saw earlier, then it isn't a massive leap to think that lead being banned would contribute to a decrease in crime. Jessica Wolpaul Reyes, a professor in economics, has written a paper about the theory and says she believes the reduction in childhood lead exposure was responsible for the significant declines in violent crime. On page 35, she writes, "'Childhood lead exposure appears to be significantly related to adult violent crime. I first consider the period from 1992 to 2002, during which time violent crime declined by 34%. The above results predict a 56% decline in the per capita violent crime rate due to reductions in lead exposure. At the same time, the increased effective abortion rate would reduce per capita violent crime by 29%. Other factors, police, prisons, beer consumption, and crack appeared to be responsible for an approximate 23% decline. In total, all of these influences substantially overexplain the decline in crime and some other unknown factors must have increased crime. I can also look at a longer time frame to examine both the rise and decline in crime. In the earlier period from 1972 to 1992, violent crime went up 83%. In this period, effective grams per gallon rose 19%, which would lead to a 28% increase in violent crime. However, much of the rise in lead exposure came from the increase in driving and the non-committent use of gasoline rather than the increase in lead content. Because per capita lead takes this intensity of gasoline use into account multiplying by gallons per capita, it may better describe the rise in lead exposure. Such an approach yields an estimate of a 91% increase in violent crime due to increasing lead exposure. Putting the pieces together, the long story is approximately as follows. 
From 1972 to 1992, violent crime rose 83%. Increasing lead exposure produced a 28 to 91% increase. The growth of prisons produced a 35% increase and the remaining 24 to 87% increase remains unexplained. From 1992 to 2002, violent crime dropped 34%. Declining lead exposure produced a 56% decrease. Legalized abortion produced a 29% decrease. Other factors produced a 23% decrease. And a remaining 74% increase remains unexplained. Thus, the current results imply that lead exposure was likely an important factor in both the rise and decline in violent crime in the last 30 years. At the same time, the history of violent crime is not fully understood. A sustained rise in crime of about three to 5% annually remains unexplained. I think what I appreciate about Jessica's data and how she presents it is that she does consider other factors that we've mentioned, the growth of the prison system, the decrease in crack and things of that nature. And also please note that this is not me advocating for overcrowded prisons by any means. I'm just presenting the data and the issues. The prison system is an entirely separate mess. It will be covered in the future, but not today. It's not as if lead is the only reason, but it does seem to be a significant one. When you look at all the data presented as for what this could mean in the future, she predicts that violent crime could be as much as 70% lower than if lead had remained in gasoline and as much as 35 to 45% lower if abortion had never been legalized. Violent crime has continued to stay down historically. However, given the pandemic and civil rights movements in 2020, I don't think we can really call it a typical year either. Otherwise, Jessica's data of violent crime decreasing throughout the years has been extremely accurate and her paper is well-sourced. The BBC has also taken a look at Jessica's data and why she began taking a look at lead in the first place. Apparently, it was around the year 2000 when Jessica was pregnant and she began researching about risks to her unborn child's health, lead being one of them. At the time, people were trying to understand why crime had gone down and she wanted to test if there was a causal link. The way I did that was to look at the removal of leaded petrol in the United States in the 1970s to see if it could be linked to patterns of crime reduction in the 1990s, she said. While Paul Rays gathered lead data from each state, including figures for gasoline sales. She plotted the crime rates in each area and then used common statistical techniques to exclude other factors that could cause crime. Her results backed the lead crime hypothesis. There is a substantial causal relationship, she says. I can see it in the state-to-state variations. States that experience particularly early or particularly sharp declines in lead experience particularly early or substantially sharp declines in violent crime 20 years later. Aside from discussing lead's potential influence over the crime rate, it would also explain why the crime rate may be higher in denser and more polluted neighborhoods. Jessica writes that if disadvantaged groups live in these areas, they will experience higher lead exposure as children and therefore potentially may exhibit more criminal behavior. Other sources have confirmed as much and said that colorblind health policies have exacerbated environmental injustice and lead poisoning has revealed environmental racism in the United States. One 2020 article said that using data collected from the CDC, one three-year analysis found that black children living below the US federal poverty level are four times as likely to have elevated levels of lead in their blood than poor white or Hispanic children. A lot of people had been saying, oh, black children are just more at risk because they're more likely to be poor said study co-author Dennis Yetter, an independent academic and undergraduate nursing student in Kansas. Yeah, poverty is a problem, but it's nothing compared to being a black child in America. Yetter was astounded by the results of their three-year analysis. I knew it was bad, but I was expecting something like a marginal increase, something statistically significant. Not two to three times higher, they told DW. That is obscene. 
These are the consequences of redlining, old paint, among other things. Even just little bits of dust from the paint in old homes can lead to increased lead level. It doesn't take that much. Studies about future health have been inconsistent, but it is clear that African-American children are by far worse off when it comes to lead exposure. Look no further than Flint, Michigan, where the water has been plagued by lead along with other substances. Like we've seen many times before, unfortunately, when something is dangerous or there is a flaw within a system, be it company towns, drug wars, or even just a battle against lead poisoning, it's often much worse for black people or people of color in general because of discriminatory laws and common practices. Also, as a final thing I want to note in this section about the data before we move on to looking at some real world proof is that it doesn't mean you've had lead poisoning that you're bound to become dangerous. Instead, high levels of lead may exacerbate those who perhaps may be struggling or have low IQs, potentially giving them artificially heightened violent tendencies. So please don't take this as something that, oh my God, I had lead poisoning as a kid, therefore I'm going to become a murderer or anything. I just wanna put that out there. But what about lead's involvement in crime specifically? Now that we've seen some evidence that there is at least a correlation and potentially causation, we wanna see some specific examples, obviously. Well, one of Jessica's sources is Rick Nevin, a senior economist who published a book called Lucifer Curve, all about the legacy of lead poisoning and crime. He's essentially leading the charge on this lead crime hypothesis, as some have said, and he gives specific examples of his work. One article from Mother Jones breaks down some of the proof that he provides in one of his papers. Interestingly enough, from 1900 to 1911, there was a drastic increase in rural homicides. Not urban homicides where the pollution and population is high, but rural, and that seems unusual, right? If lead exposure is part of the reason, then this would mean that rural areas would have been exposed around 1880, and it takes some time for lead to build up, to show itself, and for the data to reflect that. So were rural Americans exposed to lead in the 1880s? Well, the answer to that is actually yes. And it has to do with barns and why barns are painted red. According to Nevin, professional painters in the 1800s prepared house paint by mixing linseed oil with white lead paste. About 90% of Americans lived in rural areas in the mid 1800s and subsistence farmers could make linseed, flaxseed oil, but few had access to white lead. So they mixed linseed oil with red rust to kill fungi that trapped moisture and increased wood decay. Red barns are still a tradition in most USA farming regions, but white barns are the norm along the path of the old national road. Why? The old national road, by the way, spans from Maryland to Illinois, going through several other states to get there. It's the first major improved highway in the States. Anyway, the reason the red barn tradition never took root along that path is likely because the national road made freight, including white lead, accessible to nearby farmers. USA lead output was a relatively stable 1,000 to 2,000 tons per year from 1801 to 1825 but lead output was 15,000 to 30,000 tons per year in the mid 1830s through the mid 1860s after the completion of the National Road. The first American patent for ready mixed paint was filed in 1867. Railroads built almost 120,000 track miles from 1850 to 1900, and Sears Roebuck and other mail order catalogs combined volume buying, railroad transport, and rural free parcel post delivery to provide economical rural access to a wide variety of products in the 1890s. The murder arrest rate in large cities was more than seven times the national homicide rate in large cities from 1900 to 1904. 
And this is because as Nevin speculates, lead paint was available in large cities, but not in rural cities a few decades prior. However, as lead paint became more available in the late 1800s, the murder rate rose. So is this just a weird, funky coincidence? Yeah, it could be, absolutely. I think it can be dangerous to attribute too much to lead poisoning as doing so could dismiss many other reasons as to why crime can occur, whether that be injustices or otherwise. Even so, it's fascinating to think about and more research has been done that at least supports the idea of lead causing these lasting mental consequences. One political scientist, James Wilson, has also written about the decrease in lead exposure, improving impulse control in young men. In recent years, neuroscientists have also made progress in identifying what lead does to our brain. One PLOS study focused in Cincinnati, they repeated measures of blood levels in babies in poorer areas from 1979 and 1984. And then 20 years later, these babies now who are adults were tracked down and put in MRI machines. Researchers found a link between lead exposure and a decrease in brain volume, as well as a dose response effect, meaning that the greatest loss of volume was attributed to the greatest exposure. Unfortunately, I wasn't able to find the sample size of the study or how many participants took place, but for anyone, the degradation of our prefrontal cortex is incredibly noteworthy. I'm not a neuroscientist, but to put it very simply, our prefrontal cortex makes executive decisions like planning, judgment, decision-making, anticipation, and reasoning. There is a link, absolutely, to this part of the brain not functioning properly and aggression. Some studies in patients have also shown that severe injuries to the frontal lobe can change people or make them become antisocial or violent. And please note that when I'm saying antisocial in this context, I don't mean someone who's introverted, but more along the lines of bullying others or intimidating others, that sort of antisocial behavior or violent behavior. Another source writes, antisocial individuals tended to show more damage in these brain regions than did control subjects. Some adolescents respond to even mild perceived threats with inappropriate aggression. Research shows that teenage boys with this reactive type of aggression show abnormal brain activity relative to their peers. In response to fear-inducing images, these boys showed more activity in the amygdala, which is extensively connected to the prefrontal cortex, and less activity in the frontal cortex, which is involved in impulse control than other teenagers. Violence is harmful not only to society, but also to the health of both victim and aggressor. Being the recipient of an aggressive social encounter can cause changes in the brain that lead to depression, anxiety, and susceptibility to immune-related illnesses. So yeah, I think it's pretty safe to say that if your prefrontal cortex isn't doing what it's supposed to do, you're more likely to act abnormally. And in this case, we're talking about potential violence. And if you have lead poisoning, it seems more likely that your prefrontal cortex won't really be developed properly. Again, this does not mean that all violent people or all crime can be attributed to this. I wanna make that really, really clear today that this is just a really interesting theory that I stumbled across. Even so, the evidence is compelling. So I figured it was worth digging a little bit deeper into. Of course, to present the other side of the argument here, there are those that completely dismiss this theory. Some criminologists believe that crime is simply a sociological issue and not at all a biological one. Roger Matthews, professor of criminology at the University of Kent has accused biological criminologists of completely missing the mark and that there's a long history of people trying to link biology to crime, but it keeps getting disproved. He refers to it as a bad penny that keeps cropping up. Others accuse him of being close-minded while Matthews explains that even if there was a link, why would those effects be criminal? Dr. Bernard Gesch explains that a few factors in criminal justice data can predict rates of crime, but lead can. 
Woolpole Ray's data is actually so accurate that police and policymakers in the US have begun to take it seriously. So while I can't understand Matthew's idea that crime is sociological, why can't it be both? If the data is there, isn't it worth considering? And it's not just the data on lead that supports this either, but the data on arrests. People that grew up in the 70s, the peak era for gasoline lead contamination are more likely to commit crimes than someone who grew up in the 90s or 2000s, low lead eras. And this isn't by a tiny amount either, but the percentages are vastly different here. From 1980 to 2011, the USA Juvenile Under 18 Index crime rate fell by 57%. And the age 18 to 24 index crime rate fell by 21%, but the index crime rate increased by 32% for ages 35 to 49. The fall in the juvenile arrest rate from 1980 to 2011 compares youths born in the 1960s near the peak in leaded gasoline exposure with those born after leaded gas was eliminated in the mid-1980s. The 1980 to 2011 increase in the ages 35 to 49 arrest rate compares adults born before the 1950s surge in leaded gas use with those born near the peak in leaded gas exposure. What this is saying essentially is that grandma and grandpa are still committing crimes, whereas crime rates are falling between all other age groups. And as for those that have committed multiple crimes and even murders, well, there are some links between lead and serial killers as well. While it wouldn't prove the lead poisoning causes murder theory, if there's any more evidence to support this theory, I would like to hear it. But as of right now, as far as the data on serial killers goes, There was a noted rise in serial killers during the period of 1960 to 1980. Data shows the lead exposure from petrol also could have played an important role though. Again, the FBI's behavioral unit notes that there is no single factor that leads to the development of a serial killer. And I do agree with them on that point. If it's a cocktail of things as some describe, then perhaps lead exposure is just one more ingredient in said cocktail. A few noteworthy pieces of data explain that lead emissions from cars around the 40s and 50s ingested by toddlers in the baby boom era would have led to a massive spike in crime if they were old enough. These toddlers would have become adults right around the timeframe when crime in fact spiked. Plus this correlation is true everywhere. Forbes writes, Every country studied has shown the same strong correlation between leaded gasoline and violent crime rates. Within the United States, you can see the data at state level. Where lead correlations declined quickly, crime declined quickly. Where it declined slowly, crime declined slowly. The data even holds true at the neighborhood level. High lead concentrations correlate so well that you can overlay maps of crime rates over maps of lead concentrations and get an almost perfect fit. Plus, given the damage that we know lead can do and the potentially irreversible damage that it causes to the brain, this theory is looking more and more compelling by the minute. And if you want more evidence that this holds true in other countries too, look no further than Japan, where crime rates are so low that police are actually bored. Apparently, one woman claimed five police officers crowded her apartment after she said her underwear was swiped from a clothesline, and there was only one fatal shooting in the whole of 2015. Now, this isn't to say that there is no crime there. There have been a number of mass stabbings over the years. However, their crime rate is one of the lowest in the world. And an interesting point to consider is that Japan was one of the first countries to ban lead back in 1972. So again, just another very interesting correlation. Now, naturally, all this means is there's going to be a lot of predictions floating around as to what this may mean for other countries. Of course, we can't exactly test this theory by deliberately poisoning thousands of children to see whether they become criminals or not. So one of the best ways to look if this is accurate is by watching other places that are banning lead at a later date. 
One author and supporter of this theory is Kevin Drum, who's written several articles for Mother Jones and has predicted that terrorism in the Middle East will decline between 2020 and 2040. I know this sounds incredibly far-fetched and believe me, but I'm presenting this because it's interesting to consider. In this article, Kevin explains that leaded gasoline was used in the Middle East up until the late 90s and Egypt began phasing it out in 1998, with other countries following over the next decade or so. Only a few countries, including Iraq and Afghanistan, still sell significant amounts of gasoline. And since lead poisoning affects infants and little kids most severely, its effects really start to show up at 18 to 20 years later. What this means is that around 2020, present time-ish, we should start to notice a decline in crime. Of course, the pandemic is obviously going to impact any results that we could possibly see right now. But if crime does begin to decrease within like, let's say the next decade, if we start to see a trend, this could actually be a possible factor as to why. Kevin is careful with his words though. And he says, obviously terrorism like crime has a lot of causes. What's more, you could eliminate every molecule of lead in the world and you'd still have plenty of crime and plenty of terrorism, but you'd have less. If terrorism follows the path of violent crime, eliminating leaded gasoline could reduce the levels of terrorism by 50% or more. It's also possible, though this is much more speculative, that effective terrorism requires a minimum critical mass of people who are drawn to it. If you fall below that minimum, it might wither away. In other words, it's possible that removing lead from gasoline could reduce terrorism by even more than 50%. In any case, this leads to a concrete prediction. Between 2020 and 2040, the level of terrorism emanating from the Middle East will drop by at least half, ditto for violence more generally, including civil wars. In a decade or so, we should begin to get hints whether this prediction is correct. If this doesn't happen, then so be it, the prediction was wrong. But if it does, this could be fantastic and help us have a deeper understanding of what may lead to violence in the first place. Again, not all violence is caused by lead poisoning or anything, but it's still an avenue to explore. But what about our own power to change things? After all, couldn't the laws in New York City have contributed to the homicide rate we talked about earlier? Well, this sort of feeds into the prediction aspect too. Kevin doesn't just address the correlation between lead and crime, but how crime hasn't been affected by political leaders, at least not as much as you might think. For example, in 1993, when Rudy Giuliani ran for mayor, he promised to be tough on crime. At least that was the platform he campaigned on and Giuliani made good on his promises. Things seemed to be working the more aggressive Giuliani got. In 1996, crime plunged for the third straight year and people were praising him. However, what Kevin Drum calls more remarkable is the fact that criminologists and political scientists alike within that timeframe predicted that the echo of the baby boom would produce juvenile superior predators, a surge of criminals in other words. And that was a surge that never came. Violent crime in New York City peaked in 1990, just a few years before Giuliani came along. Crime had actually dropped 12% even before he took office. Plus in other cities across the States, crime rates were dropping, none of which Giuliani was the mayor of. And this wasn't by any small number either. In Washington, DC, it was 54%. In Dallas, 70%. In Newark, 74%. In LA, 78%. So did all of these states change their policies at the same time and it just worked? Well, there are certainly plenty of theories, some about gun control, some about parole and probation, some about the number of police officers. Mother Jones reads, In 1999, economist Stephen Levitt, later famous as the co-author of Freakonomics, teamed up with John Donahue to suggest that crime dropped because of Roe v. Wade. Legalized abortion, they argued, led to fewer unwanted babies, which meant fewer maladjusted and violent young men two decades later. 
However, here's where all of these theories struggle, and that's with the numbers. You can't really quantify which one of these had a greater effect, but we can quantify the gas lead per ton per thousand people and compare that to the data we have on everything from crime to teen pregnancy. And while it's not a perfect overlap, if you look at the graphs on either, you'll see an extremely common upward trend until when lead was phased out, a downward one. You have to add a lag time to see it, those two decades or so for the lead to take effect, but the trend has remained the same for every country, every city, every state, every neighborhood studied within these papers. Not to mention, this theory has even held true in opposite conditions. Not only did crime rates drop drastically in New York when people thought they were bound to rise, but they've continued to stay low, even when some people thought things were bound to fail under Bill de Blasio. In fact, the crime rate has been relatively constant over the years with very little fluctuation all the way up until 2018, which is the last year that the data set currently exists for. So all we have to do is avoid lead, right? Well, here's where the trouble is. All that lead spewing out of car tailpipes back in the day, it had to go somewhere and it did right into the soil we walk on, grow our food in, and that kids play in. We're certainly far better off without leaded gasoline as this was the worst offender of the lead we breathed, but it's not exactly vanishing anywhere anytime soon. And that's the final question facing us. What can we do? Well, I think Kevin from Mother Jones puts it best honestly when he says that this is the best choice before us. We can either attack crime at its root by getting rid of the remaining lead in our environment, or we can continue our current policy of waiting 20 years and then locking up all the lead poisoned kids who have turned into criminals. There's always an excuse not to spend more money on a policy as tedious sounding as lead abatement. Budgets are tight and research on a problem as complex as crime will never be definitive. But the association between lead and crime has in recent years become pretty overwhelming. If you gave me the choice right now of spending $20 billion less on prisons and cops and spending 20 billion more on getting rid of lead, I'd take the deal in a heartbeat. Not only would solving our lead problem do more than any prison to reduce our crime problem, it would produce smarter, better adjusted kids in the bargain. There's nothing partisan about this. Nothing that should appeal more to one group than another. It's just common sense. Cleaning up the rest of the lead that remains in our environment could turn out to be the cheapest, most effective crime prevention tool we have, and we should start doing it tomorrow. And again, just to reiterate as we're closing this out today, this is only a theory, and let me reiterate that because this is just a theory right now. But because it's held true all over the world, because there's so much data to support it, I really feel that it's a theory that needs to be taken more seriously. But of course, That's just my opinion on today's topic. Let me know what you think. If you enjoyed today's episode, make sure that you're liking, following, and subscribing so you can stay up to date every time I upload. I wanna thank you so much for spending some time here with me today. I hope you found this episode interesting because I most certainly did. So thank you so much for being here and I'll see you in the next one. Bye.